Part 2, Chapter 2, Section 56 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 2, Baptism and Temptation of Jesus. Section 56, The History of the Temptation as a Mythos. Satan the evil being and enemy of mankind borrowed from the persian religion was by the jews whose exclusiveness limited all that was good and truly human to the israelitish people viewed as the special adversary of their nation and hence as the lord of the heathen states with whom they were in hostility the interests of the jewish people being centered in the messiah it followed that Satan was emphatically his adversary, and thus throughout the New Testament we find the idea of Jesus as the Messiah associated with that of Satan as the enemy of his person and cause. Christ, having appeared to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, the latter seizes every opportunity of sowing tares among the good seed. Matthew chapter 13 verse 39, and not only aims, though unsuccessfully, at obtaining the mastery over Jesus himself, John chapter 14 verse 30, but continually assails the faithful, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. As these attacks of the devil on the pious are nothing else than attempts to get them into his power, that is, to entice them to sin, and as this can only be done by the indirect suggestion or immediate insinuation of evil seductive thoughts, Satan had the appellation of the tempter. In the prologue to the book of Job, he seeks to seduce the pious man from God by the instrumentality of a succession of plagues and misfortunes, while the ensnaring counsel which the serpent gave to the woman was early considered an immediate diabolical suggestion. Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 24, John, chapter 8, verse 44, Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9. In the more ancient Hebrew theology, the idea was current that temptation was an act of God himself, who thus put his favorites, as Abraham, Genesis, chapter 22, verse 1, and the people of Israel, Exodus chapter 16 verse 4 and elsewhere, to the test, or, in just anger, even instigated men to pernicious deeds. But as soon as the idea of Satan was formed, the office of temptation was transferred to him and withdrawn from God, with whose absolute goodness it began to be viewed as incompatible. James chapter 1 verse 13. Hence, it is Satan who, by his importunity, obtains the divine permission to put Job to the severest trial through suffering. Hence, David's culpable project of numbering the people, which, in the second book of Samuel, was traced to the anger of God, as in the later Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1, put directly into the account of the devil, and even the well-meant temptation with which, according to Genesis, God visited Abraham, 
in requiring from him the sacrifice of his son, was, in the opinion of the later Jews, undertaken by God at the instigation of Satan. Nor was this enough. Scenes were imagined in which the devil personally encountered Abraham on his way to the place of sacrifice, and in which he tempted the people of Israel during the absence of Moses. If the most eminent men of piety in Hebrew antiquity were thus tempted, in the earlier view, by God, in the later one, by Satan, what was more natural than to suppose that the Messiah, the head of all the righteous, the representative and champion of God's people, would be the primary object of the assaults of Satan? And we find this actually recorded as a rabbinical opinion, in the material mode of representation of the later Judaism, under the form of a bodily appearance and a personal dialogue. If a place were demanded where Satan might probably undertake such a temptation of the Messiah, the wilderness would present itself from more than one quarter. Not only had it been from Azazel, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 8 through 10, and Asmodeus, Tobit chapter 8, verse 3, to the demons ejected by Jesus, Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, the fearful dwelling place of the infernal powers, it was also the scene of temptation for the people of Israel, that Phileus de Collectivus. Added to this, it was the habit of Jesus to retire to solitary places for still meditation and prayer. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, John chapter 6, verse 15. To which, after his consecration to the messianic office, he would feel more than usually disposed. It is hence possible that, as some theologians have supposed, a residence of Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism, though not one of precisely forty days' duration, served as the historical foundation of our narrative. But, even without this connecting thread, both the already noticed choice of place and that of time are to be explained by the consideration that it seemed consonant with the destiny of the messiah that like a second hercules he should undergo such a trial in his entrance into mature age and the messianic office but what had the messiah to do in the wilderness that the messiah the second saviour should like his typical predecessor moses on mount sinai submit himself to the holy discipline of fasting was an idea the more inviting because it furnished a suitable introduction to the first temptation which presupposed extreme hunger the type of moses and that of elias first kings chapter nineteen verse eight determined also the duration of this fast in the wilderness for they too had fasted forty days moreover the number forty was held sacred in hebrew antiquity above all the forty days of the temptation of jesus seem as olhausen justly observes a miniature image of the forty years trial in the wilderness endured by the israelitish people as a penal emblem of the forty days spent by the spies in the land of canaan numbers chapter fourteen verse thirty four for 
that in the temptations of jesus there was a special reference to the temptation of israel in the wilderness is shown by the circumstance that all the passages cited by jesus in opposition to satan are drawn from the recapitulatory description of the journeyings of the israelites in deuteronomy chapter six and chapter eight the apostle paul too first corinthians chapter ten verse six enumerates a series of particulars from the behavior of the israelites in the wilderness with the consequent judgments of god and warns christians against similar conduct pronouncing verses six and eleven the punishments inflicted on the ancients to be types for the admonition of the living his contemporaries on which the ends of the world were come wherefore he adds let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall it is not probable that this was merely the private opinion of the apostle it seems rather to have been a current notion that the hard trials of the people led by moses as well as of moses individually were types of those which awaited the followers of the messiah in the catastrophe which he was to usher in and still more emphatically the messiah himself who here appears as the antitype of the people gloriously overcoming all the temptations under which they had fallen the israelites were principally tempted by hunger during their wanderings in the wilderness hence the first temptation of the messiah was determined beforehand the rabbins too among the various temptations of abraham which they recount generally reckon hunger that satan when prompting jesus to seek relief from his hunger by an exertion of his own will instead of awaiting it in faith from god should make use of the terms given in our evangelists cannot be matter of surprise if we consider not only that the wilderness was stony but that to produce a thing from stones was a proverbial expression denoting the supply of an object altogether wanting matthew chapter three verse nine luke chapter nineteen verse forty and that stone and bread formed a common contrast matthew chapter seven verse nine the reply of jesus to this suggestion is in the same train of ideas on which the entire first act of temptation is constructed for he quotes the lessons which according to deuteronomy chapter eight verse three the people of israel tardily learned from the temptation of hunger a temptation however under which they were not resigned but were provoked to murmur namely that man shall not live by bread alone etc but one temptation would not suffice of abraham the rabbins enumerated ten but this number was too large for a dramatic narrative like that in the gospels and among lower numbers the sacred three must have the preference thrice during his spiritual contest in gethsemane jesus severed himself from his disciples matthew chapter twenty six thrice peter denied his lord and thrice jesus subsequently questioned his love john chapter twenty one in that rabbinical passage which represents abraham as tempted by the devil in person 
the patriarch parries three thrusts from him, in which particular, as well as in the manner in which Old Testament texts are bandied by the parties, the scene is allied to the evangelical one. The second temptation in Matthew was not determined by its relation to the preceding. Hence, its presentation seems abrupt, and the choice fortuitous or capricious. This may be true with respect to its form, but its substantial meaning is in close connection with the foregoing temptation, since it also has reference to the conduct of the Jewish people in the wilderness. To them, the warning was given in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, to tempt God no more as they had tempted him at Massa, a warning which was reiterated, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, to the members of the new covenant, though more in allusion to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. To this crying sin, therefore, under which the ancient people of God had fallen, must the Messiah be incited, that by resisting the incitement he might compensate, as it were, for the transgression of the people. Now the conduct which was condemned in them as a tempting of the Lord, was occasioned by a dearth of water, and consisted in their murmurs at this deprivation. This, to later tradition, did not seem fully to correspond to the terms. Something more suitable was sought for, and from this point of view there could hardly be a more eligible choice than the one we actually find in our history of the temptation for nothing can be more properly called a tempting of god than so audacious an appeal to his extraordinary succor as that suggested by satan in his second temptation the reason why a leap from the pinnacle of the temple was named as an example of such presumption is put into the mouth of satan himself it occurred to the originator of this feature in the narrative that the passage psalm ninety one verse eleven was capable of perversion into a motive for a rash act it is there promised to one dwelling under the protection of jehovah a designation under which the messiah was preeminently understood that angels should bear him up in their hands lest at any time he should dash his foot against a stone bearing up in their hands to prevent a fall seemed to imply a precipitation from some eminence and this might induce the idea that the divinely protected messiah might hurl himself from a height with impunity but from what height there could be no hesitation on this point to the pious man and therefore to the head of all the pious is appropriated according to psalm fifteen verse one psalm twenty four verse three the distinction of going up to Jehovah's holy hill and standing within his holy place. Hence, the pinnacle of the temple, in the presumptuous mode of inference supposed, might be regarded as the height whence the Messiah could precipitate himself unhurt. The third temptation which Jesus underwent, to worship the devil, is not apparent among the temptations of God's ancient people but one of the most fatal seductions by which the Israelites were led astray in the wilderness was that of idolatry, and the Apostle Paul 
adduces it as admonitory to Christians. Not only is this sin derived immediately from the devil in a passage above quoted, but in the latter Jewish idea, idolatry was identical with the worship of the devil. Baruch chapter 4 verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 20. How, then, could the worship of the devil be suggested to the Messiah in the form of a temptation? The notion of the Messiah as he who, being the king of the Jewish people, was destined to be lord of all other nations, and that of Satan as the ruler of the heathen world to be conquered by the Messiah, were here combined. That dominion over the world which, in the Christianized imagination of the period, the Messiah was to obtain by a long and painful struggle, was offered him in an easy bargain if he could only pay Satan the tribute of worship. This temptation Jesus meets with the maxim inculcated on the Israelites, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13, that God alone is to be worshipped, and thus gives the enemy a final dismissal. Matthew and Mark crown their history of the temptation with the appearance of angels to Jesus, and their refreshing him with nourishment after his long fast and the fatigues of temptation. This incident was prefigured by a similar ministration to Elijah after his forty days fast, and was brought nearer to the imagination by the circumstance that the manna which appeased the hunger of the people in the wilderness was named angel's food psalm seventy eight verse twenty five from the septuagint and wisdom of solomon chapter sixteen verse twenty end of section fifty six